0: Hello. Well, this week on the podcast, I want to explore why the Conservative Party is so critical of the BBC. And I'm delighted to be joined by Henry Hill, who's the deputy editor of the Conservative Home website, which is absolutely essential to go to if you want to understand what's been happening in the Tory party and what's likely to happen. Well, Henry, welcome to the podcast. I want to start by asking you about something which Tony Hall, the former director general of the BBC, told us on our last edition of the podcast. He said the UK is drifting towards partisan news. Do you agree? Um, I'd say
1: so, at least slowly. You On the television side, you obviously have the rise of GB News and, to a lesser extent, Talk TV as these kind of right-wing media networks of a sort that we haven't really had in the uk before on the other side channel 4 is bluntly channel 4 news is kind of the other side's version of that it does have a quite heavy political lean and that's just the broadcasters you know beyond that you've got endless podcasts and so on which don't have any kind of obligation towards impartiality and those are increasingly popular so we've always had a partisan newspaper landscape and that's always been part of how The British media worked, but television and broadcast was always different and it was regulated differently. And I think that that difference is starting
0: to break down a bit. And do you think that this matters in the sense that we want a rich panoply of views? But if you have something like the BBC still continuing at the heart of this, there is a place for people to go to where they want relatively, as they would see it anyway, non-partisan news? Or do you think there's a feeling in the Conservative Party that actually you don't need the BBC anymore, just have lots of different outlets with different views, and that's all fine? No, the market will provide, in other words.
1: I think, personally, I am a I'm a pro-BBC conservative, I think that it is really important that you have that kind of meeting point and also, you know, a part of my broader politics as a unionist, I think it's vital that the BBC one of a dwindling number of truly national institutions remains a national institution where people from all over the country can tune in to the same content which is actually one of the reasons I'm slightly wary of the BBC constantly kind of setting up separate scottish shows and so on but i think the BBC is important there's two sort of strains of conservative thought that a BBC skeptic the first one the sort of older one is the why don't we just make it a subscription model the kind of free market one you know if, if there's a market for BBC content then It will be provided by people who will voluntarily subscribe to it. It has a huge archive that it can monetize. Why are we charging what is essentially a very regressive tax in order to produce the BBC? And the latter one, the more modern one, I say more modern, more recent one, is motivated much more by the idea that the BBC is not impartial. It's not unbiased. It is actively anti-conservative or at least latently anti-conservative in some respects and therefore why should they or a conservative government or conservative voters be charged the license fee and provide other sort of state subsidies to support this corporation now i don't think that's a majority view and i don't think you're going to see a conservative government not least because there probably won't be one after 2024 but i don't think you're going to see a conservative government actively advocating for the abolition of the of the BBC or some dramatic change to its status anytime soon,
0: what I was trying to get at, i suppose was that i mean by the way, this attitude of the BBC has gone on for as long as I can remember. I remember Kenneth Baker, who you know the telling me uh in a in a reception room after a party conference they just occasionally had to kick the bbc just as they had to kick europe in order to get through some of his more liberal policies so it's been a go-to bogeyman the bbc for a long time hasn't it but i mean some people would argue there's nothing wrong with more parties and channels as long as you have a bbc but if you get rid of a bbc and only have partisan channels, well, we're on our way to a situation that exists in America with Fox TV, where the demands of the business mean that the executives, indeed the presenters on air, are lying about such things as uh, Donald Trump losing the election. So do you think that actually a a condition of these more partisan channels is that you retain something like the BBC, to as it were, provide a go-to place for fact as opposed to opinion?
1: Yes, with a caveat, because obviously the BBC, while it's important and it does strive to be impartial and it's really important that it does that, I'd be wary about stating that anywhere genuinely delivers straight fact. No attempts to. Yeah, everywhere editorialises to some extent, but I agree. I think it is really important that you've got the BBC as somewhere, at least, where people from different political persuasions can view the same news, because otherwise you do end up in America. And the problem with America is not just that they lie, although they do. It's just that even at a more benign level, just if everyone is tuning into different stations, which reflect their views back at them, and reflect their vision of the country and their version of events back at them, it fuels political polarisation. It makes everyone more sure they're right. It means that people have less in common. And that's done really ugly things to uh, American politics. And I really don't want that to happen
0: here. And what happens when you put that sort of argument to your conservative friends or colleagues who have a different point of view? I mean, do they recognise the danger or not?
1: So to those who do want to get rid of the BBC, it's not an issue I've debated all that often with, with, with people face to face. But some of them are just genuine free marketeers, or they object specifically to the licence fee. And I do think that there is perhaps a case for, mod- for for changing the way that the BBC is funded. But they they say, look, we you know we believe in we believe in freedom, we believe in the efficiency of markets. Why do we have this kind of massive monolith when in fact we could be you know, it could be a much leaner operation that's funded by people who actually want its services? And the others argue that the BBC is not what I'm claiming it is. They're saying that it's not a neutral space. As I said, they're claiming that it is. a a space that is biased against conservatives and if conservatives believe that then the entire argument for maintaining the bbc does fall to pieces a bit
0: well the argument is an alternative to getting rid of it is to reform it and you would have thought that conservatives having had how long in power now 13 years more or less had a succession of uh, ch- chairmen recently who are tories or sympathetic to tories you have a large number of bbc <laughs> news executives who somehow end up you know working for conservative prime ministers or whatever i mean it's quite surprising that they hold on to this idea isn't it? when the evidence is that if you look at the bbc board at the moment you would clearly see the influence of 13 years of conservative government
1: In the composition of the board,
0: yes. I mean,
1: I I fundamentally don't think that the BBC is particularly biased against the Conservative Party, so I can't tell you exactly, chapter and verse, why they think that it is. But, you know, it's not helpful to have these high-profile rows over people like Gary Lineker, where somebody is clearly breaching the BBC's impartiality rules time and again and is simply getting away with it. And I do think that that's one of the areas that you could reform. But ultimately, you're right. The Conservatives could and probably should – have done more to reform the BBC during the time they were in office. And that's just a subset of the fact that, you know, we've had 13 years of Conservative government. And in many areas, not just the BBC, but in many areas of British policy, they simply haven't done any of these kind of big structural thinking, structural reforms. And that's one of the reasons that Tory activists now are so... Frustrated, I think, that we've been in power so long and achieved so little. So you're right, the the Conservatives definitely should have engaged more intelligently with the question of the BBC's future. But the fact that they didn't is not unique to the BBC or to media policy. It's simply a subset of the fact that this has been, in many respects, a quite unimaginative period of Tory rule.
0: What slightly surprises me is that the, the, with the Conservative Party 30, forty years ago would have been, as I mentioned, quite antagonistic to aspects of the BBC, but they would have got and be broadly supportive of institutions committed to public service. And they would be concerned about what people were being taught in school about history or science or elsewhere they 'd be concerned about the provision of classical music on and teaching of religion and understanding other faiths and they would see that there was a need for that, and then they would argue well is what 's the best way of delivering that?" public service good that we've identified. And then they might have a view that the BBC is flawed or there are other ways of funding. But you start with the concept of public service broadcasting and the need for it. That, 40 years ago on the whole, would not have been contested in most, I think, conservative circles. Do you think now, on the question of public service broadcasting, there is a real feeling that it is in some way not necessary? Because that seems to me to be jar with the conservative tradition of wishing to hand on certain values. It's a strange one
1: because you're right. And it's, again, a sign of a quite, in the recent period, profoundly unimaginative approach to the media. I think Channel 4 is another example, you know, the, the, the plan to privatise Channel 4. If you're a conservative government and you are concerned about cultural issues, uh, I won't use culture war because I think that's a derogatory term for are often legitimate debates, but if you're concerned about cultural issues and you want to develop British industry in filmmaking and television making and you have this channel, there are so many things that you could have done with it. And I think it's indicative of a certain poverty of thinking in the current government that the reflex was just sell it. You know, Thatcher privatised things. Ergo, we should privatise this. And it's the same with the BBC. I, I think actually the Conservatives could have potentially made a very strong case in some respects for reforming how the BBC funds certain things, for example. if you're want to make the argument that we have a public service broadcaster for me part of that argument is that you are funding things which are culturally valuable which might not be commercially viable and then the bbc comes along and it sort of tries to shut the bbc singers and it closes down world service stations and so on and i think that was an opening for the conservatives to go actually no we're going to take a much more proactive approach to managing the stuff that the bbc actually funds and why are you hosing millions of pounds at superstar uh, sports broadcasters when sports are perfectly covered elsewhere when you are cutting this valuable stuff
0: well that's a criticism and maybe a legitimate one of the means you've chosen the bbc to deliver public service but what i'm struck by is the absence of the wider debate about what is public service what we want and therefore whether the bbc is the best way of providing it or not i mean you must have noticed that you were educated um at Trinity College, Dublin, and he did uh, Modern Irish History, he got M. Phil in that, and so on. And and don't you despair when you look at the nature of the debate over Brexit, over the protocol, for example, or more generally about the lack of interest on the mainland and lack of knowledge of Ireland? And you think, uh, surely public service broadcasting ought to be able to play a role in dealing with that ignorance.
1: Yes, it should, and it's particularly galling for me, uh, whenever Northern Ireland gets discussed, because Northern Ireland, even by people who are very well-meaning, often gets an incredibly shallow treatment. And, you know, Ireland, as anyone who studied Irish history will tell you, has a very long and complicated history and is a big subject. And yes, in an ideal world, the BBC would have a role providing much more sort of neutral, this is an introduction to the topic, here are the basic facts that you need to know, and then you can build opinionated and editorialised stuff off that, and it doesn't. And you're right, fundamentally, I support the BBC, and I think that the Conservatives should have a much clearer idea of what they want the BBC to do. But I think that the reason that the Conservatives' response to the BBC is so antagonistic is precisely because, for the most part, that thinking hasn't been done, which means that they can't approach the question of the BBC with a proactive plan, and therefore they can just criticise and talk about defunding and everything else.
0: And you see, that's what one finds with Ofcom, it seems to me, when a number of people we've talked to on this podcast, they say that Ofcom is virtually, and indeed in the new media bill, is almost saying to the broadcasters, you can decide, we're going to devolve to you decisions on what public services you can make your mind up, oh, by the way, we'll take away the requirement of certain quotas, you don't have to justify your coverage of religion or things like that. And it's almost as if Ofcom has given up, Um, because there isn't a debate elsewhere whatever trying to think through what should public service media be for the next 20 years the government seems seems to have no interest what this does it seems to me is leave the major players to actually make you know decide for themselves and in the bbc's case probably prepare for a future without a license fee what's missing in all of this is a public debate about a public good
1: No, I mean, I agree with you. You're right. And you even look at the conservative think tanks, and this just isn't something that comes up. It's not engaging conservative thinkers. And in fairness, I haven't seen much evidence on the Labour side that they've really engaged with the question of the future of the BBC. But it is... Profoundly important, because as I wrote in, a, in another piece for, for CapEx about BBC and neutrality, for the BBC to justify its privileged role and its funding mechanisms, it really does actually have to be that place where people come together. And there has to be cross-party, cross-partisan, not universal, because you'll never get universal, but broad-spectrum support and respect for it and what it does and belief that it is doing its job well. And if support for the BBC on the right collapses whether you think that that collapse is justified or not, whether you think the criticisms are justified or not, it then becomes, regardless of that, very difficult to justify having a corporation and a broadcaster with all of those privileges. So it's really important, actually, for those of us on the right who support the BBC, to try and get conservatives to engage seriously with the question of, okay, this is a really important principle, whatever our criticism of the BBC, what do we want it to look like, as you say? And then so we can talk about reforming the BBC not sounding like antagonists not sounding like kind of xerox thatcherites who just want to sell everything off but with a positive plan for making the bbc cleave more closely to what our understanding of public service broadcasting is i think we'd be much
0: more effective at criticizing the bbc of that with the case just start on the question of how you pay for it why not decide what you what it is that you wish to keep then decide how to deliver it then decide how to pay for it but g- granted where we are at the moment and we're now two years into gb news for example um What do you think of GB News? Because I was um, I was quite astonished the other day to see two Conservative MPs interviewing a Conservative Chancellor of the Exchequer in well, you may not call it a news programme, I suppose you have to call it a current affairs programme, was not, I think, the most searching interview I have ever uh, watched in my life. Do you think there's something bizarre about the impartiality rules as interpreted by Ofcom that now allow that sort of thing for MPs to interview ministers from their own party?
1: So it's a new phenomenon, and Ofcom has just announced that they're going to be doing new research on this, which I think, Is entirely justified, because unless I've missed something, until GB News, essentially, it was not a thing for sitting MPs to be serving as broadcast journalists. You know, Diane Abbott was on the This Week sofa once a week alongside Michael Portillo, but you didn't have them presenting shows. And it it does present a challenge from the perspective of if you, given what we expect of our news media and our, our broadcast news media, we always have that reputation for it being slightly more impartial, it being better regulated. And therefore, actually, I think that it's more dangerous to have heavily editorialised echo chambers on television than perhaps it is in print. Because if you buy the Daily Telegraph or the Spectator or the Critic or whatever else, you know what you're getting, right? You you know, you're conditioned to know what the British print media is like. But television, because of the legacy of how we've regulated it in the past, has that additional authority. And it's important that Ofcom maintains that.
0: Well, uh, as Stuart Purvis told us uh, on the podcast, he said, um, what Ofcom has, do- has done is to redefine a news programme, and it hasn't actually done it in a very public way, by having a consultation or openly changing the guidance. It's done it, I have to say, as a former Ofcom executive, slightly by stealth. That seems to me to be correct, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I mean, I-, I can't say that I follow Ofcom as regularly as some of your other interviewees, but I'm prepared to take their word for it, yes.
0: Yeah. And the other thing that Stuart pointed out to us was that um, there's an Ofcom rule which says programmes must exclude all expressions of the views and opinions of the person providing the service. Now, he said, I'm very carefully going to say that I'm not accusing Sir Paul Marshall of using his channel, GB News, as a mouthpiece for his use, but I cannot but not point out that Sir Paul was a major donor to Vote Leave, is a major donor to the Conservative Party, that last year GB News lost £30 million on revenue of £3 million. Now, does that worry you? I mean, essentially, a a political figure prepared to lose a great deal of money can buy a channel.
1: Um, I think that as long as, uh, going back to what we said at the start... If you, As long as you have the BBC there, I'm not inherently opposed to more partisan media as long as they're open about it, right? In the same way that our newspapers are. You know, adult voters in this country can navigate the press and the biases of the press because it's open and it's above board and that's fine. So I think that as long as the regulation is tightened up and is suitable and makes sure that anything that is editorialised in opinion is actually presented as such, and there's not this kind of grey area that there currently is, where something is a current affairs programme, but it is heavily editorialised, but it's not presented necessarily as opinion because of the format, then that's fine. Because ultimately, you know, people are not brainwashable. People can buy newspapers. People have been buying newspapers for centuries. And democracy has survived that. What's important is that we maintain an arena in the middle which can, against which these can be measured, which can hold them to account, and where voters looking for something else, where people looking for something else, can go and find it.
0: Now, I've I've appeared once or twice on GB News, I should say, as as a guest, and I've been very well treated, and people have been fair with me, with, uh, you know, very clear what they thought, but being fair, so I have no complaints at all about them. But you, in a recent uh, column for the Conservative Home website, where you're... um, deputy editor were quite critical of a an interview I think on Dan Wharton tonight with Liz Truss I think the basic argument you put forward was he was an opportunity to do an intelligent examination of the real issues about how you cut public spending given the general conservative view is too high but it's a very difficult issue and what you got actually were conspiracy theories and other things like that is that a fair summary of your article that is a fair
1: summary i should say i'm on gb news a fair amount
0: unsurprisingly
1: as a as a conservative commentator and uh, i very much enjoy being on many of those shows but the the, that article that i wrote for conservative home was about if you're going to have a center right to right-wing media station such as gb news it's whether or not it is actually a boon or any sort of aid to conservative politics or not and i think that the problem not with all of its coverage by any means but with the stuff like that wouldn't interview and in town hall with Liz Truss, is that if you actually want to be advancing the cause of centre-right politics in this country, you, you do have to ask the hard questions. And a dedicated channel could be a great space in which to do that. But in, if instead, what you do is you provide softball platforms for politicians to make excuses and convince a minority of conservative voters and activists, but, you know, a, a noisy minority and not a tiny one, that the world is just out to get them. that is actively deleterious to the very course which the channel is supposed to be trying to promote
0: you see Rob Burley was on another uh, uh, earlier podcast as well who specialised in the BBC on political programs and long form interviews and has just published a book uh, uh, about all of this, looks longingly back uh, to the day of the Brian Walden interviews. We're now talking about 1980s. um, And I would say, of course, with with Weekend World, but I would say on Panorama and elsewhere, the long-form interview where it was expected... That major political figures, particularly prime ministers or leadership aspirants and so on, would put themselves up through a pretty grueling form of interview which was able to focus on policy. Now, is it naive to believe that that's possible anymore? Uh, We've got the rise of channels dedicated to opinion. We've got a lot of BBC people, would say on BBC and, and Channel 4 IT, and people who just want the gotcha quote. And where in the, in the middle of it is the real focus on the very difficult issues that face this country on the levels of public Spanish, for example, on energy policy and so on. You know, it seems to me that politicians are increasingly unwilling to get involved in that long sort of searching interview. Um, do you feel that? Do you feel the dearth that, that you missed that sort of interview? Or am I being naive to think it's possible to bring it back? I certainly miss it.
1: I think there are several factors which have contributed to the decline of it, one of which is simply the speed at which a story or a gaffe, to use the the sort of soul-crushing lingo of the trade, can catch fire in the age of 24-hour news and social media. So a politician giving a long, relatively unguarded interview with searching questions for which they haven't prepped within an inch of their lives That's obviously at risk of if you've got an hour or half an hour of a really long in-depth interview. A clip of that where they say something wrong can be clipped, put on Twitter and blow up. And that's all that a lot of people will see. And it's difficult to see how you can fix that because my industry, you know, we have to hold our hands up here. We are always lamenting the decline of politicians speaking off the cuff and being open. But we are always piling on when they misspeak. And I think that that's on us. And another factor, which I I really want to explore at some point, but I haven't had time yet, but which has been put to me by a couple of people, is actually another thing that's kind of led to the decline of this kind of programming is the changes to how Parliament works. Because when it was the case that um, Parliament, before Robin Cook's reforms, would often sit until the early hours of the morning, several nights a week, you had all of these politicos and politicians and journalists and all that who were up. And therefore, there was this space late at night for that kind of programming and there was an audience for it, and that has declined. Now, I, I, that's only a thesis that's been put to me, but someone who's interested in how Parliament works is absolutely fascinating. But I think that the challenge is, if you want to bring that kind of interview back, which I really would, because I think you know, it would be great if we could interrogate politicians more and learn more about their thinking and so on. But how do you do it, given the huge pressures on politicians and given the response if they get something wrong? It's, that's the challenge. You know, We interviewed Rishi Sunak for Conservative Home and our editor, the first question we asked him was about, you know, why have you come into politics? What is it that animates you? And he pivoted to his five priorities and he did that. I think we asked the question three times and he did that every time. Now, that is deeply frustrating, but there is a reason that politicians do that, which is that they want the clip that you use and which is, that most, which is all that most people will ever see to be of them talking about what they want to talk about. And I don't know how you fix that problem.
0: Well, uh, we're coming to the end of the interview, Henry, and uh, I would like to ha- ask you how you're going to fix the BBC because you've made the case for maintaining it, but with considerable reservations. And, you know, what are your concerns about overall? Is it that people in the BBC don't understand impartiality? Well, what is it that really bugs you about the BBC, even though you are a supporter? I don't know about
1: really bugs. I, For me, I think that if I were given a blank slate and charged with reforming the BBC i would start with a review of everything it currently does i would work out what it is a that we want it to do and b that no one else will do and then i would i would tighten up its funding around those priorities and that i think would mean that it could be done a lot cheaper but i don't know that for a fact and i'd go from there and i also do think and The Gary Lineker stuff is something I've written a piece about, so I'm just going to come back to that. You know, there's this argument that, oh, well, you need impartiality in news and current affairs coverage, but, you know, we shouldn't accept the same thing of of sports and entertainment presenters and so on. And I actually don't think that's true because part of the point of the BBC, if it's going to be this meeting place where people of different opinions and from different parts of the country can come together, is that you need that to apply to the sport and entertainment as well, because otherwise you are just going to alienate A minority, perhaps, but an important minority of viewers. Now, one of the most worrying pieces of polling I've seen in covering the BBC was that faith in its public affairs and political coverage was well down only amongst conservatives, but it was down amongst conservatives. Now, that's a problem. So I would focus it much more on perhaps a narrower remit than it currently has. I personally would withdraw it from doing things which commercial stations do very well. And once we'd worked out how much all that cost, frankly, I would probably shift its funding towards a central government funding model because ultimately the TV licence is extremely regressive.
0: Henry Hill, thank you very much for talking to us. Henry was Deputy Editor of Conservative Home website. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on. And that's it for this week. Please do support us. It won't take you long to sign up. It costs less than £2 per month, which also gives you access to a weekly newsletter you can find the link on our website and in the description of this programme on your podcast platform, where you will also find details of how to contact us on Twitter, Mastodon, and by email. And if you didn't know already, this podcast is presented by me, Roger Bolton, and is produced by Kate Dixon. The sound is by Clifton Bank Studios. And special thanks to Quinn Genty. It's a good egg production. Thanks for listening.